0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Well, hello there. How are you doing? It is so good to be with you, and uh, I've got to warn you, I'm a bit of a Bible geek, All right, but I'm passionate about Jesus and I know you are as well. And I know that Aaron did a a very nice job letting you know that you got to just hang with me for a bit. Okay, this is one of those things when I'm getting in front of new people and I've not had a chance to interact with them. I just have to let them know, hang with me. The pieces will come together. You go, we're going to go this way. We're going to go this way. And you're going to be like, what are we doing? And you just got to wait a few extra moments. So are you all ready to go? All right, so we are going to look at a passage from John chapter 8. It is the woman caught in adultery. But in order to understand what's going on in John 8, we have to understand what's happening in John 7. So John 7 is giving us what we need to know for why Jesus will eventually be tested by the religious leaders and their object, their tool for their purposes is this woman that they have apparently caught in the act of adultery, which I don't know how you do that, but apparently they found a way. But we have to understand what's gone on beforehand because John, who's our storyteller recounting these stories from Jesus's life, is making sure that we're caught in with the overall context of what's unfolding. So here we go. This is from John 7 verses 1 and 2. goes like this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And now we've got to pause. Because anytime in the text you get told we're dealing with a feast, we got to go, well, this is important for John to tell us. So we need to understand what is part of this feast. So the Feast of Booze that he's talking about here is the Jewish festival of Sukkot. Let me hear you say Sukkot. You've heard this before, some of you. I know because these guys love the context. And so Sukkot is one of these festivals, one of the three main festivals pilgrim festivals where Jews were supposed to stream up from all over the world to celebrate in Jerusalem. You do that for Passover, you do that for the Festival of Weeks, and you do that for Sukkot, which is known as the Festival of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Booze, as it is here in John 7. It's also called the Feast of In Gathering. Now, there's a number of passages that help us to understand what was associated with Sukkot including from a very early Jewish text called the Mishnah. And I'm going to share a passage from the Mishnah in a little bit. But for right now, I just want to show you part of this Leviticus 23 passage that introduces us to this Jewish festival that's so significant. It goes like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, On the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And then it's going to go on from there. And what they're asking or what they're going to be required to do is for seven days, they are going to live in these temporary shelters called booths or sukkahs, which is where you get the word sukkot. So let me show you some pictures from Israel today of people getting ready to build their sukkahs. And so this is the palm branch that's being laid over top. Here's another one that is actually in the old city. Here's one on top of an apartment complex. And so for seven days, the people will live into that even today to live into the commandment from the Hebrew scriptures from the Older Testament. Now, why are they supposed to do this? Why does God say, I want you to do that? Well, it has everything to do with remembering their time in the desert. Now, this is my friend, George. He is not dead. He's just taking a break. We're out in the Sinai desert. And it's to remind the people that for 40 years, God provided for you in this vulnerable desert experience. And so the people come together, and in the midst of this, you are reminded of God's provision for something that happened in the past. It's an event. And almost all of the Jewish festivals commemorate some kind of an event, and it's generally connected to the Exodus story. So when people celebrate this, they recall what God did for them in the past. But there's also a thanksgiving for something in the present, because this culminates the season where all of your crops, what are called your winter and your summer crops, have come in, you have brought them in, and so it's like a Thanksgiving festival where you go to the temple and you go, God, my wheat, my barley, my olives, my figs, my dates, my pomegranates, my grapes, God, you have provided for us and we now have food. Thank you for providing for us. And so there is this understanding that you're thanking God for something in the past, you're thanking God for something in the present, but what's more is that you are pleading with God for something for the future. And this is what made Sukkot very interesting because there was a future aspect that you were pleading for. So here's how it works in the land of Israel. There are only two seasons. They are from the mid-October to mid-April, you have your rainy season. And then you have your dry season from mid-April to mid-October. And when we talk about wet season, many of you probably know from the teachings here, is that for six months out of the year, you get rain in the land. But then roughly around mid-April to mid-October, you don't get any rain at all. In fact, most parts of the country, you don't even see a drop of rain. And so you've got these two seasons. Now, I grew up in Michigan, and we only had two seasons as well. We had winter and construction, right? Is that, is that true around here as well? Some of you like, yes, okay. So, so we're all on the same page. We understand this, you know, two-season life that you have. Now, in the land of Israel, as anywhere else, water is life, But contrary to Egypt that had the Nile, contrary to Babylon and Persia and Assyria that had Tigris and Euphrates and these massive rivers that would flood and inundate and provide for the country, you do not have this in the land of Israel. You have the Mediterranean Sea, which is a sea, and you can't do anything with that water that's productive. You have the very small Sea of Galilee, only 13 miles long, seven miles wide in the north. You've got the Dead Sea, which is dead for a reason. And then you've got the Jordan River, that is this puny little river that runs through the spine of Israel and Jordan today. You do not have access to great bodies of water. And so God even warns the Israelites of this, that they're in the desert in Deuteronomy, and God goes, the land you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you came. He says to them, you drink rain from heaven, which means water comes from me. You are entirely dependent on the hand of God to send the rain, to send the water. If you're going to survive in that environment and in the land of Israel today, 70% as it was back then, but it's 70% desert. So water is life. Now let me show you something from a city called Arad. It's in the Negev. This is where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were operating. Just to show you how important water is to capture every bit that falls into the land. So this is... um, Part of the site there, you can see it today, this is from 3,000 years before the time of Jesus, so this is 5,000 years ago, and in the lower part of the city, you have this cistern, and it sits at the lowest point for a reason. It's so that when it rains, all of the water collects and would drain down into this cistern. You get a little closer, and this is what the cistern looks like going down. And so they would capture every drop of rain in order to make sure they had what they needed. Now, at the end of the rainy season, where it has been raining for six months, your cisterns are filled to the brim. But as you go further into your dry season, you're using the water, and of course, your cisterns start getting lower, and then lower, and then lower, until you're down to the very end. But at the very bottom, it isn't water any longer, is it? You have pigeons that do their thing. You have the runoff, and so at the bottom, you're like, wait a minute, it's kind of grimy, it's kind of nasty, like you know that as that water is getting lower in that cistern, you are becoming even more dependent on God. Because if God doesn't send the rain, you don't have much left in your cistern. And so when it comes to This time of the year, when you're getting to the end of the dry season, this is where Sukkot becomes so important to not only commemorate something from the past, to thank God for something in the present, but to plead with God for something in the future. Because the 15th day of the seventh month, when this this festival begins, friends, this is the very last week of the dry season. So your understanding was that once these seven days are over, like the last day of the festival was the last day of the dry season, it's like now the heavens can open and rain can come. God, would you do your thing? And so when it came to the festival of Sukkot, in addition to being reminded of this is what God has done for us in the past, He's doing something for us in the present. He's got to do something for us in the future. This rain piece was so important that in the midst of the festival, a priest would come down from the temple, would come down all the way to the pool of Siloam, and would take a goblet, a golden goblet, dip it into the pool of Siloam, trek all the way back up in to the temple proper and go into the temple and pour it over the altar. And they would do this every day for the first six days of the festival as a way of saying, God, we need you to bring the rain. On the seventh day, They did something a little bit different and it was right out of Isaiah 12.3 that they used this passage as a way to encourage them to make the most of the last day. Isaiah 12.3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so the last and great day was called Hoshana Rabbah. Let me hear you say Hoshana. What does that sound like by the way? It's Hosanna, exactly it's from the Hebrew phrase "Hoshea Na, which means save us now. And then Rabbah means great. So this is the great day of saving us now is how you would say that. And so on Hoshana Rabbah, the last and greatest day of the festival, when the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam to dip the golden goblet into the water to take it back up, there was a procession that followed that priest down to the water. The Levites would have there songs that they would be singing priests would be gl- being blowing golden trumpets there would be pilgrims that would be shaking palm branches all the way because when you shake a palm branch it sounds like rainfall and so there would be this moment where you would go all the way down and when they came all the way back up into the temple and the priests would begin pouring the water on the altar everybody up on the Temple Mount would just break out in cheers and applause and psalms as a way of collectively saying, God, you have to bring the water. And this is all around the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. And when John 7 opens, it says that the Jews' Feast of Booths was approaching. And the rest of chapter seven is Jesus going up to the temple during Sukkot. He has some interactions with the religious leaders, some not so great interactions because they don't like what Jesus is doing. And then all of a sudden, we come to this passage in John 7, 37 to 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, What day are we dealing with? Hoshana Rabbah, the last and great day. It says, Jesus stood up and cried out. Jewish teachers sit to teach. Jesus stands up. That detail alone goes, buckle up. And it says that he cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." Friends, this is the driest day of the entire year when everybody is most aware of their absolute necessity to have water from God. And at the moment where everybody is cheering, Jesus stands up and in a way where he can belt his voice above the people, he shouts and he says, if you are looking for water, if anyone is thirsty, they can come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as a scripture has said, out of his heart will flow waters, uh, flow rivers of living water. Friends, this is the closest you get to a mic drop in the first, te- in the testaments, okay? Either testaments, Jesus says something and everybody goes, what is, what is going on right now? For some of the people we find out right after this, they are celebrating with great joy. There are other people, the religious leaders, who are irate. And you go, what did Jesus do here that made them so irate? Well, when Jesus starts talking about living water, this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about himself in connection to living water. The rest of the people would not have known about this because the story that John gives us is from John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And now we have Jesus again talking about living water. Now you ask, well, what's the big deal about living water? In Hebrew, it's this phrase, it's this idea that this water that is living, that is moving, that is active, there were all of these religious traditions around how you become purified through living water, moving water, but it's talking about this water that gives you life. And the one thing we can't miss here in all of this is that when it says out of his heart, people at times have fumbled over this because it's not distinctly clear in the Greek who is his here. Is it the person who believes in Jesus or is it Jesus himself? And it's almost certainly referring to Jesus Because when Jesus says out of his heart, meaning his heart will flow rivers of living water, Jesus is making the pronouncement that he is the source of this living water. And he's gonna go on, he's gonna talk about the spirit of God doing something inside of us. And the thing we have to remember is that we as people are not the source of living water. We can become a conduit of that living water, but that Jesus is the source of the living water. And here's why everybody is so ticked off. Because this idea of living water isn't introduced with Jesus in the gospel of John. It actually shows up in connection with God in only two places in the Older Testament, and they're both in Jeremiah. And what's fascinating, by the way, little tip of hand of where we're going, John records Jesus calling himself living water twice. There's only two instances in the Old Testament connected to God. There's only two in the New Testament and they're both connected to Jesus. And in Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 17.13 are the two passages where God is connected to living water. Let me just show you this first one from Jeremiah 2.13. God is speaking, and he's through his prophet Jeremiah. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, this is on the lips of Jeremiah from God. Jeremiah is a desert man. Jeremiah is from a city called Anatot. And Anatot is from about a mile and a half to two miles from Jerusalem, and it's in the Judean desert. This is what it looks like. And for Jeremiah, yes, from God, talking about this idea of living water, anybody in the entire country would have an idea of exactly where you would put a physical location to this. This is the beautiful thing about the people of the Bible is that for them, knowledge is not abstract. Ideas are not abstract. They're always rooting it in a concrete image. They want you to get your mind around something specific. And when you are in the desert and you start talking about living water, En Gedi is the place where everybody's mind would immediately go because it looks like this. It is absolutely stunning. It is an oasis in the midst of the desert. It is a perennial spring that is gushing all year long. It is famous today as it was in the Bible times. Now, God says, again, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, and yet they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's like God saying, listen, this is what I am to you and to my people. This is what I am like in the midst of their life. I am living water. I am this source, this never-ending perennial source of water. And he says, but my people have chosen to rather have that. And he says, what's more, that cistern is broken. It can't even hold water. And God goes, okay, here are your two options. Should I take A (laughs) or should I take B? And everybody in their right mind, nobody would want to take B. And yet God goes, that's what you're choosing. That's what you can get. And when Jesus says in the midst of the entire crowd that I am a source of living water. He has just claimed God's words as his own. And to the religious leaders, this is blasphemy. This is treacherous. How dare you claim God's words as your very own? And to the people whose lives were breaking, whose lives felt like one of these cisterns right here. And Jesus goes, and you can have me. This is what I can be to you. Will you allow me to be that for you? They're saying, yes, that's exactly what we want. And the religious leaders are like, we don't like what you're doing and you are completely messing things up. And that's how John 7 ends. There's a tension between which way is this gonna go? And that's why this is our foundation for John 8. And so what I want to do for this is that I want to just read, Aaron, let me borrow a very nice, big, heavy Bible, so I'm going to get a workout in here as well. (laughs) Is that I just want you to listen to this now knowing what's just happened. We are in the context of Sukkot Listen to these words. It says, they went to each to their own home. This is the end of chapter seven, verse one of chapter eight. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Okay, so now this whole story is back at the temple. The seven day Sukkot festival, all of these pilgrims from all over the world, some are going home, some are still hanging around. You better believe this place was still packed. And it says this, it says early in the morning came again to the temple, all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Remember Jewish teachers sit to teach. And then it says this, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So it's like these leaders are going, all right, we are looking for an opportune time to get him in hot water. And when they come and say, listen, she's been caught in the act of adultery. And what do you say to this? Because if Jesus exonerates her, he is going to be touted as someone who doesn't hold up the very words of God coming off the heels of just quoting the very words of God for himself. But if he says, yes, stone her, now he's in trouble because Rome is ruling the land and the Jews cannot exercise capital punishment. The whole story of Stephen and Acts, that thing fell through the cracks and you better believe they got in a lot of trouble for that. And so they're putting Jesus into a conundrum. And they take this woman whose life is actually just full of brokenness and pain and chaos. And we find out at the end of the story, which we'll read, Jesus tells her to go and leave her sin no more. She is, in fact, guilty. But what's going on in this scene is incredibly shady by the religious leaders. They're trying to trap Jesus. That you can see right away but there are two other pieces of this that let you know just how deep the shadiness goes. Here are the two passages or two passages from the Torah that talk about having a woman stoned if she's caught in the act of adultery. It's Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22. And what I want to highlight in both of these passages is that the person who's supposed to be put to death is that if it's a wife, so she has to be married and apparently they're saying, Moses said, we can stone such a woman, which means she's married. And so then the question becomes, what else is supposed to happen in this scene? And in these passages, it doesn't say that just the woman is to be stoned. It's that both the man and the woman. Where's the dude? No, Right? He's not there which already lets us know how shady the religious leaders are in this moment. He should be right there as well. And yet they are using this woman as a prop to put Jesus in hot water. But the treachery on behalf of the religious leaders goes even deeper. Check this out. We're in the festival season. This is the seventh month. And Sukkot is not the only festival that's being celebrated in this seventh month. The first festival of the seventh month actually begins on the first day. It is the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. It starts on the first day. The next major holiday is on the 10th day and it's the most significant day of the year. It's Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. It's the day where the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation where God will forgive the sins of the people. But what the Mishnah lets us know is that this is the sins between the people and God. Check this out from the Mishnah. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, atones for a person's transgressions against God, but it does not atone for his transgressions against his fellow man until he appeases him. And what this means is this, and you see this even in Jesus saying, you've got to love God and you've got to love neighbor is that the people understood that on the Jewish day of atonement, God will forgive the sins against the people and God, but it's the horizontal relationships with others that you need to have had rectified before that 10th day. So even in Jewish custom today, You have between the first day and the 10th day what is called the 10 days of awe where you're seeking out anyone that you thought you've wronged in the last year and you're making amends so that on Yom Kippur your sins with others and sins with God are all taken care of. You have a clean slate. And then on the 15th day, now we have Sukkot. And the Sukkot lasts seven days until the 21st day, which encompasses the last and great day, the Hoshana Rabbah. But a brilliant Jewish scholar by the name of David Stern tells us this about the other aspect of Hoshana Rabbah, which makes this really, really interesting. He writes this. Hoshana Rabbah was understood to be the absolutely final chance to have one's sins for the year forgiven. On Rosh Hashanah, one asks to be inscribed in the book of life. And on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, one hopes to have that inscription sealed. Yet in Jewish tradition, there remained opportunity for forgiveness up to Hoshanah Rabbah that your sins could be forgiven up to, there was a grace period of up to the 21st day. Friends, what day is the woman brought to Jesus? The day after that, she has no grace left. And the Jewish leaders bring her to Jesus and he goes, and so what are you going to do about this, Jesus? And we read this in the next verse. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, as you do in a situation like this, apparently. (laughs) And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So it is an incredibly intense, like Jesus knows all the levels of shenanigans that these religious leaders are bringing against him. And they basically stand him in face to face, and they go, so what are you gonna do about this? And Jesus' response gets down He starts doing something in the dirt. They're not picking up on it. So he stands up and he says, if any of you is without sin, then you cast the first stone. And then he gets right back down. And it says, at this they heard and they began to go away. And the question becomes, what just happened? What is Jesus doing here in the dirt? It's fascinating to hear people's interpretations about what Jesus is doing. Some are saying that he's just, you know, doodling on the ground. Some say he's actually writing the names of the mistresses of these religious leaders. I don't know. Maybe he was coming up with an idea for an etch a sketch. I don't know. (laughs) That is, we don't know if we don't look to the text because I think the answer is looking at us squarely in the face. I mentioned earlier that there are only two passages that talk about God being the source of living water. They're both in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2.13 and in Jeremiah 17.13, that when for seven straight days, the people are pleading with God, the source of living water to send living water on them. There are two passages that are constantly running through their mind for the entire seven days of Sukkot. You know, the first of those passages. Here's the second of those passages. Let's look at verse 10 to begin of chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God is speaking here and he's saying the heart is deceitful. And then we see just a few short verses later. This is what it says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Come on now. And all Jesus has to do is start going like this in the dirt And he brings attention to how deceitful their hearts have been. They put the pieces together in a moment and they start walking away because Jesus is probably putting their names in the dirt and saying, you are forsaking the Lord. You're forsaking the fountain of living water. And I'm now that living water. And if you're going to try to go against me, your names are going to be in this dirt. And all he has to do is put his fingers in the dirt and they get it, and they leave. And Jesus, who is still down on his knees, he stands up, and he says to the woman, so where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. See, friends, on this day, it was expected that the heavens would open and living water would begin to pour out on the land. And what we see is that the day after the last day of Sukkot, the rains were to begin, living water was to appear. And living water, Jesus appeared and gave love and grace to a dry and desolate woman whose window for grace, according to the people, had passed. And Jesus extends this amazing grace to someone according to the people who wasn't worthy of any grace. And what I love about what Jesus does here is that Jesus does not condemn her, but he also doesn't condone her. That when John introduces us to Jesus in John chapter one, after he's talked about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he talks about the fact that Jesus came with grace and truth. That for Jesus, when he says to the woman, I do not condemn you, he offers her grace. But when he says, go and leave your life of sin, he's saying, here's the truth. I'm gonna lead with grace. But the truth of the matter is, this is not a life you want to live. And she's just been paraded, she's just been humiliated in public at a time where there are lots of people around. And Jesus leads, though, with this grace. And this is what, for me, is why I love Jesus so much. Is that Jesus had this amazing ability to lead with grace, but to bring truth along at the right time. For many people, they wanna lead, this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth, and you basically become a religious, pious jerk that nobody wants to be around. But then there are some people who all they wanna be is grace, 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 and they become an enabler. But that Jesus had this ability to strike a balance that when people were hurting, it wasn't about, I told you so, why don't you get your life back together? He went with them with grace. And here's how I would just summarize it, because it's not only what Jesus is doing. See, examples he's setting for us as well. I would just say this, that Jesus had an astonishing ability to love broken people extravagantly without ever watering down his values and convictions. He accepted them where they were at and compellingly guided them towards wholeness. It's a hard balance to strike, and yet it's one Jesus expects of his followers. That when we come across someone whose life is like that, We don't stand there and condemn them. We lead with living water. That we live out of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God has given to us. This is why I said earlier, we are not the source of living water, but we are a conduit of living water. That out of how God has worked in our lives, that when we can be reminded of how God has constantly reached out to us in grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, then we can become that conduit that when we see other people's lives who are like that, we don't begin with a posture that points our fingers like that. We become that to them. And it just leads us to ask this question, friends, is that where are our names written in the dust? Where are we not doing that well with that person at work or that classmate at school or the crazy aunt or the crazy uncle we're gonna sit around a Thanksgiving table with in a few weeks that we're already dreading? How do we embody this message of Jesus? Because people flocked to Jesus regardless of what they were going through because he had this unbelievable ability to love them well, despite whatever they were going through. And that for us, we're called to be that to those who are there. Because Jesus said, I am the source of living water. Whoever comes to me who is thirsty, they may drink. That if our lives are broken, Jesus goes, this is what I will be to you. And in the same token, as we seek to emulate Jesus in our lives, friends, this is the greatest picture of what followers of Jesus are to look like in pouring living water onto those who need it. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for today. We thank you for just all of the many ways, God, that you reach out to us in our times of need And we thank you for just an unbelievable story, Jesus, about how you lead with grace. That it's not grace without truth. It's that truth comes when it is appropriate, but that you led with grace. And we pray, God, that if in any way today our lives feels like that broken cistern, that God, you would pour onto our dry and dehydrated souls living water that will bring nourishment to us. And God, as we experience that living water in our own souls and in our own lives, may we become a conduit through which your living water can pass through us and reach out to those who we know who are struggling around us that God, however you have prodded our hearts, however your Holy Spirit is moving in the midst of us, may we listen and may we walk this out. And God, may you be glorified in it all. We love you, we bless you, we thank you. And everybody said again, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from real life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.